If you're visiting with us, we're thankful to have you here with us. Uh, we do want to wish a happy Father's Day uh, to all the fathers who are, are celebrating uh, that this morning. We are in uh, the Gospel of Mark in the 14th chapter. We have been uh, going through this Gospel and we uh, find ourselves now here in the 14th chapter and the 12th verse. Uh, I read this week uh, about a story of a young man named Eric, and I'm going to tell you a portion uh, of his story. In 2014, uh, Eric Abramovitz was a clarinet player who had um, applied to be accepted to a two-year musical school, the Colburn Conservatory of Music in Los Angeles. It was a very rare opportunity. Uh, the professor at the time, Yuda Gilead, would only accept two clarinet students every year. And the good news is that Eric was accepted. The bad news was that his girlfriend didn't want him to go, received the acceptance letter, deleted it, created a fake email address from Gilead Yuda, sent him an email saying he was not accepted to the program, and then sent Abraham or Yudad, Yuda an email saying he won't be or I won't be coming. I have other things I'm doing. Two years later was the first time that Eric and Yuda met. And both were wondering on that occasion why the other had rejected them only to find out that they both thought the other had rejected them. After a little bit of legwork, Eric found out that his then girlfriend had orchestrated this entire thing. If that were to happen to you, how would you feel? What do you think is the likelihood that this couple just simply said, well, you know, those things happen, couples have hard times, let's continue dating. As you can imagine, they were no longer dating, and a lawsuit closely ensued wherein Eric was awarded a $265,000 settlement. Betrayal. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever experienced betrayal. See, one question we can ask is how we would respond to betrayal, but that's not the question we're going to ask this morning. The question is, what does Jesus do in the face of betrayal? Mark 14 has this narrative flow to it that if you didn't understand Jesus, it would probably seem very disoriented. I kind of think of Mark 14 like if my kids were to show me a math equation and I knew the answer wasn't right, I'd say, go back to the drawing board because something's off here. Or Mark 14 is kind of like a puzzle where you fit all the pieces in and there's only one spot left, but this last piece just doesn't fit. The things that flow in Mark 14 seem to be confusing with how we would expect things to go. But in some ways, those of us who have been reading Mark's gospel, we should be prepared for a Jesus who is introducing a unique, upside-down vision of the kingdom. Jesus often does things that doesn't make sense, and he praises things that we don't expect him to praise. And so Mark 14, we find the servant king who's ushering in an upside-down kingdom doing some things that, at least to us, seem awfully strange. See, here's the pieces of the puzzle in Mark 14. There is the betrayal of Judas that is predicted. There is a covenant meal. 
Then the desertion of the disciples is predicted. There is a prayer of surrender, then there is the betrayal of Judas, and then there is the desertion of the disciples. And so how would you naturally want to fit these pieces together? I would be tempted to put it in this order. The betrayal of Judas is predicted. The desertion of the disciples is predicted. There is a prayer of surrender, there is betrayal of Judas, there is desertion of the disciples, and then with whoever's left, if you're still faithful, I will then share in a covenant meal with you. But that's not how Mark puts it together, is it? Perhaps you'd feel more comfortable putting it together this way. There is a covenant meal, and then there is the betrayal of Judas. There is the desertion of the disciples. And in that case, we just simply say, Jesus is kind of like the dunce who didn't know what was going on. He was getting played the whole time. But is that what's going on? Jesus would be much like Haman in the book of Esther. When the king invites Haman in and he says, hey, if I wanted to honor someone, what should I do for him? And Haman thought the king was talking about him. And so he said, oh, I know, put him on the horse and ride him around and have everyone think he's a great guy. And then right away the king says, good, go do that with Mordecai, who was his arch enemy. Is that this kind of a moment for Jesus? Where Jesus thinks something's happening and then all of a sudden he's shocked and he's surprised that things are going very differently than he expected. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 16, begins in a very reminiscent way of Mark 11, 1 through 6, where the disciples are sent somewhere. They are told what to expect and what will happen, and then they find everything just as he had told them. Just as when Jesus entered to Jerusalem, Mark wants us to be very clear, Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. As we move closer to the cross, Mark is reminding us once again, all of the things that are playing out very close to the cross, Jesus is aware of. He is not taken by surprise. The irony is in Mark 14.1, we have the chief priests who are looking for a sly or a stealthy or a sneaky way to arrest Jesus, but Jesus is fully aware of the plot. I shared this story last Sunday night, but I was working in the office last Sunday afternoon, and some of the kids from my neighborhood, they came and they rang the doorbell, and then they ran away. And it was so much fun, they decided they would do it again. They came and they rang the doorbell, and then they ran away. But little did they know, we have a video camera. And so I was watching what they were doing, and I know who they are because they're my neighbors. And so Sunday night after church, I actually walked by and I saw them, and I said, hey, just so you guys know, if you ever need anything, please come by the office. We're always happy to help if you need something. But if you don't, there's no reason to ring the doorbell and run away. And the one girl's eyes got this big, like, how did he know? See, Jesus is like the person who's in the video control room. And everybody thinks they're sneaking around, that he's unaware of what's going on, but Jesus is fully aware of everything that is happening and everything that will be happening. And so it seems to me that the most likely conclusion is that Mark's ordering of events is exactly how things played out. And that Jesus was not caught unaware by the unfolding of any of these things. See, Jesus knew that he would be betrayed that he would be abandoned, and yet he still desired to give himself up for them and to enter into a covenant relationship with these imperfect disciples. What Jesus knows in Mark 14 is that 
uh, in verse 8 that the woman has anointed his body beforehand for its burial. He knows his death is coming soon. Jesus knows that one of the twelve is going to betray him. Jesus knows in verse 27 that they will all become deserters. And Jesus knows in verse 30 that Peter will deny him. Now, knowing all of this, what would you do? If you think about it like wedding planning, you've got the guest list together, and you're ready to send out all the invitations to everyone who's coming, and then you find out that your Uncle John, the one who is helping to oversee and administer the finances, has actually been skimming from the top and putting some of that money in his pocket. He betrayed you. Does Uncle John still get an invitation to your wedding? I would assume most likely not. Or a friend who you've been planning a vacation with, and as the date for the vacation is coming nearer, you find out that that friend has been calling your boss and telling him all sorts of things, trying to convince him to fire you. Do you still go on vacation with that friend? Or if you're Eric and you find out that your girlfriend sent a false rejection letter to you, do you continue dating her? See, there are certain things that we expect will happen What does Jesus do? He, after being aware of betrayal, he shares one of the closest relational activities of his culture. He has a meal with his disciples. And so as Mark tells us in the 17th verse, while it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating with Jesus, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread into the bowl with me. And as Mark tells this, he emphasizes two things. And yes, the first is a made-up word, the withness and the eating together. Notice how whenever Jesus first called the disciples in Mark chapter 3, verse 14... He gave them a job, three jobs, in fact, but the very first job was to be with him. That's what it means to be one of these chosen people, those who are invited to be with Jesus. And so Mark is saying they are with him. So the disciples are eating together. Jesus came with the twelve. It is the one who is eating with him. It is the one who is dipping the bread into the bowl with me. In a Jewish culture, there was no closer way to show commonality with someone than to eat a meal together. If someone was not worthy to be there or not good enough, you simply would never sit down at a table with them. You would have nothing at all to do with them. As David Garland says, eating together was evidence of peace, trust, forgiveness, and brotherhood. So let me ask you, knowing that, would you expect Jesus to eat with them, knowing exactly what it is they're about to do? Not just Judas, but all of the disciples. See, I think it would be easier for us to predict that Jesus would do something like what happens in Psalm 41, verses 9 and 10. David wrote, Even my bosom friend, in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted the heel against me. And so what does one do when somebody you ate with, had that close relationship with, if they betray you, what do you do? And it's not too surprising, and we can probably relate to David's request in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up 
that I might repay them. Would that be your request, the one that betrays you? It is a request here to be raised up, which we will find Jesus will speak of being raised up here. But is Jesus raised up in order to then repay those who wronged him? Perhaps that's why it's so shocking and surprising to us that we find these words in Mark 14, verse 22 through 25. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly is the giver, and the twelve play the role of recipients. So what does Jesus do in their response? What he knows is coming of all of this betrayal, he offers them the greatest gift. Just as he has been doing throughout Mark, he takes the initiative. He becomes the subject of every action verb. It is he who took a loaf, who blessed it, who broke it, and it is he who gave it. As James Edwards says, all of the activity that is signified by the verbs is the result of the gift of Jesus himself, holy and without reserve, in his self-offering to the disciples. Jesus has told us in Mark 10:45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like his whole ministry, this is not done for his own sake, but he does it for them. Of both the bread and of the cup, he says, this is my body and my blood. To see self-giving love is one thing, but to see self-giving love in the context of those you know who will betray you. Would you really want to give your body and your blood for betrayers, for people who will desert you, and for those who will leave you? See, perhaps this is where Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 6 through 8, that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the people at this table. Is it the righteous, the deserving who Jesus invites to sit at his table? Or is it someone altogether different? And so Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And we find in Mark, like we found often in the Old Testament, the combination between blood and a meal becoming the basis of a new covenant. We find that in the 24th chapter of Exodus. So what then is the basis of a covenant relationship with Jesus? Is it the behavior and the morality and the, and the goodness of the disciples? Is that why Jesus says, I'm entering into a covenant with you because you've proven yourselves over three years to be great, trustworthy people? No, the basis of the covenant is his blood and his sacrifice. Like the very first Passover where blood would be placed on the door and those who by faith put that blood on the door, they were saved by one thing alone, that that was by the blood that rested over the door. And the same will be true of these twelve. They will be saved no longer by blood placed on the door, but instead by the blood that is shed by Jesus Christ. 
His blood becomes both the source of deliverance and the foundation of the covenant. Jeremiah did speak of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, and here Jesus brings about the new covenant. And something is missing from this Passover meal. They would share in a lamb, and yet there is no mention of a lamb, and that's because the lamb at this meal is not on the table. The lamb is himself there at the table with them. As Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered by the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and made interse- intercession for the transgressors. See, we find this covenant, much like the first, is based not on the behavior or the activities of the disciples, but is on the nature of the covenant maker. That as Christ makes the covenant, we can be reminded, as Timothy Keller says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey in order to get things from God, but the gospel says, I obey God to delight in Him and resemble Him. The meal is a reminder of what He has done in creating and also in sustaining a covenant with His people. And the meal does have a future optimistic hope where Jesus says, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. The hope mentions, the hope is based on one thing that is mentioned in the 28th verse, where Jesus says, but after I am raised up. We are reminded that death will not be the final chapter, that there will be a celebration anew in the kingdom of God. The one who hosted that meal will then become the host for the meal in this new covenant kingdom. And once again, we'll see that the hope is not in the disciples. If we put our hope in behavior, we will quickly be disappointed. Mark tells us, he uses the word of drank. He says, all of them drank from it. And he will use that word all again in the 14th chapter, when Jesus will tell them that they will all become deserters. Peter says, hey, even if all of them deny you, then they all said the same thing. And then in the 50th verse, all of them fled. No, the disciples are not the source of our hope. The source of our hope is in the blood alone. All who receive the cup, even though they dishonor Christ, that blood will be enough for their rebellion, and that blood will be enough to establish a covenant with them. And so I just want to point out two things we learn of the nature of this covenant meal that we're about to celebrate together. The first is this is a table of grace and not of merit. Who is the ideal person who comes to the table? It is the one who recognizes their need. Jesus is offering in his body and in his blood a precious gift. But it is only those who have need who will partake of and receive it. And so in a related way, we recognize that the table is for the needy. See, there's a problem if we think we deserve to sit at this table. See, some of us may be like Peter who when we look around, we say, hey, everybody else may not behave, but I'm going to behave. One of the ironies in Mark's gospel is whenever Mark speaks of the coming death of Jesus, we have a response of overconfidence of the disciples. In the very first prediction in Mark 8, Jesus predicted his death, and what did Peter do? Peter got up and rebuked him because Peter knows what's happening. 
in the ninth chapter, whenever Jesus predicts his death, they argue about who is the greatest. In the tenth chapter, when Jesus predicts his death, they fought over who ought to have the highest position. And so even when Jesus says, this is what's coming, they won't accept that Jesus knows what's coming. As James Edwards says, the disciples respond with self-assertion and conceit rather than with humility. They're more confident in themselves than they are in the blood of Jesus. See, how are we to read this story of the disciples' failure? Are we then to say of them, well, if that were me, I would never have behaved that way. Or are we to say this is the pathway the disciples take? We will betray. We will desert. And he will be faithful through his blood and through the covenant that he creates in his blood. I'm reminded of what John Newton is said to have said as he got older. John Newton, of course, being the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And he said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and he is a great savior. And that's the humility with which we enter the table. When it says Christ died for the sins of many, do we count ourselves under the many who can never enter into relationship on the basis of our actions and of our behaviors, but we enter in on the basis of the blood that he shed? And again, as John Edwards says, those who partake of the Lord's Supper do so only as grateful sinners. And so as Christ ate that first meal with people unaware, overconfident, those are the very people that instead of Jesus saying, look, I'm not going to eat a meal with you guys, he created a covenant with them while unworthy. And so this table for us is a reminder of our need of grace, of our need of trust in that blood, of our call to follow and to behave. And so our invitation is for grateful sinners to receive the bread that was broken for us, the body of Christ, and then to receive the cup, which represents the blood that has been poured out for many. It's an invitation for those who recognize their need to share in this meal. I'm going to invite the gentleman to come forward now. We'll have a prayer um, first of all, for the bread that will be distributed, and then we'll have a prayer for the cup. Right. 